stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the Shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. of the fabulous new your only thought is to kill it for fear of great change you can't hold the tide with a broom Shoulder Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green, Dan Ferlito. And we are coming to you guys live tonight. It's been a while uh, since we've done this. Uh, We felt like it was time to step away from the craziness that is our current world, which is almost every day, and uh, talk about something that we love. And we have not had a discussion about the casting and characters of Blade Runner 2049, so we thought this was time. And uh, there's a lot to discuss, a lot of different characters like, um, I almost said Joy, like Mariette, like Sapper, like uh, Gaff, who's in it. Um, We haven't really discussed him much either, so that's what we're doing tonight. So thanks for joining. You know, like leading up to this episode, we were talking like, is it okay to record, you know, during such a kind of crazy week? Like there's so much going on. Is anybody going to care? And and I personally was sort of like, I think I need to sit out because I'm just so exhausted and, and kind of just drained from all this. Um, and something that, that Jamie said really resonated with me, which is that um, this is kind of like the exact time to do this because it's it's a chance to escape for a minute into something that we love, something that's like been there and will be there regardless of what else is happening in the world. And, uh, and Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049, to me, are more than ever two of those things that I can depend on, you know, that when... Uh, you know, it's it's easy to to talk about escapism like it's a bad thing because I think sometimes it gets kind of thrown around like that, like it's a pejorative term. Um, but it's not, you know. And and escapism done well as it is in these films is is almost like a a public health measure, you know. To have the ability to escape into art for a little bit of time um, is is a is a really really great thing. So I'm glad that we're here tonight, and I'm really glad that we have people joining us live. Um, it's been a while since we've done a live episode, so that's really really nice. And uh, and thanks for being here, everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, everyone. I uh, Before we get into characters in the cast, uh, it's interesting you bring that up, Patrick, because I was just thinking about escapism while you were talking. And um, it's interesting that while the Blade Runner films and the Blade Runner universe is not alone in this factor, um, like many people you would think 
when they say escapism, they want to escape, especially during like a crazy election or 2020 in general being a turbulent year or just like dark things happening in your life and you having a hard time. Like a lot of people would escape to something cheerier, you know, and like softer or whatever it is that makes you happy. Yet what we get a lot, especially I think from the first film, although I hear it about 2049 too, is that many people find a comfort in these films, right? Even though we talked about this before, it's not a place that you would want to be. Like you look at Kay, you look at Deckard and you're like, they look miserable and cold and unhappy. Um, but the familiarity that you have because the world is so well built. I see these comments all the time on our online groups. People are like, yeah, like I escape into this world all the time. And it's just interesting to think about how many people escape to this world. That's like in a lot of ways, much worse than our world yet. It's like comfort food. Right. Um, I just, I just find that interesting. You know, what's interesting about that though, that idea of comfort food, I think what it is that's comforting about it is, if once we're in that world with Deckard or we're in that world with Kay, there's nothing much else going on around them except for the case at hand. That's it. There's no chatter out. out. I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of stuff going on globally, politically, all sorts of things. Even a lot of the, um, whether it's Blackout, the, the short films, the, the short film with uh, Wallace informs us of the, the plight to, start making replicants again and making it legal um, people after sapper. So there's all these other stories happening, but with Kay and with Deckard, it's pretty quiet. We're immersed in a world that's quiet. We're immersed in a world that certainly today, which we have how many things going on at one time that we're struggling with. But when we're in that world, all we are is we're sitting with them in their apartment and they are facing things and they are have to, having to deal with things and have their, finding out who they are as people or replicants or whatever, but that's all they have. Whereas with us, I, I feel like that for me is the comfort of these films where it's a, it's the simpler life. It's, this is what's before us and this is what we have to focus on. And that's it. Um, as opposed to even like maybe other films. So I know I obviously Patrick and I have the perfect organism podcast, but that world is very complex and it's very loud and it's not quiet. And Ripley or whoever, or even in the prequels, there's 8,000 things happening with these people all at one time. And it's not comforting whatsoever. It's gripping. It's exciting, but it's not comforting. Whereas Blade Runner is comforting because of its simplicity, from, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. Um, I don't know if I would refer to it as simplicity, but more so... Um, an insulation and like a condensation mm. yes. into that, like a zooming in into these characters like psyche and into their particular plight and what they're doing. But you're right. We don't like the world is well built and we understand that flying over San Diego or um, talking about off world, like there's certainly a whole world out there with its politics and its wars and everything else, but we're not privy to most of that. Right. Other than little things here and there. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like your own personal life where between your relationships and your children and your family history and the country you live in and Paul, you know, on and on and on, like you can get caught up. I mean, when people get anxious and start to stress out and think about too many things, it's very easy to do the opposite of what Blade Runner does, right? Which is extrapolate into, oh my God, like what's going to happen if I can't pay off the house and what's, what about this and what about that? Whereas when we're watching these stories, 
um, we're very much invested in just that particular laser focused uh, storyline, which again, another thing that is the beauty of both films. And again, I'm going to try and keep this related to the characters, but it's that um, the storyline itself is relatively simple. But when you like Tim, Dr. Shanahan likes to say, you know, but when you walk out of the theater and that's when the conversation starts, like that's Mm -hmm. when it gets more complex and you start to explore these other things. And we go, you know, oh, well, Atari's around and Pan Am's around. I wonder if the Soviet Union collapsed in this universe or if like maybe the Soviet Union's around, maybe they're running the East Coast, you know, and and of course, like we get involved sometimes in things like Gethsemane or other projects that you guys have worked on where people write fan fiction and people write books and start to expand the universe for themselves. But yeah, I I definitely get, uh, I wouldn't have described it in exactly the same way, but I get the feeling of what you're saying. Um, and, And I think Ripley's world has that a little bit too, meaning that Yes, you can think about Wayland Utani and Mother and like all these other bigger things that are a factor and certainly exist and are well constructed in that world. But Alien, very condensed story, right? It's all about not dying, really. I mean, there are a few other factors, but in the end, and especially towards the last part of the movie, it's like one person versus one horrifying thing that's trying to kill you. Um, Aliens ups the ante, right? You go you know, back to the headquarters and the companies involved and et cetera, et cetera. But in the end, right, we tend to look at that as comfort food, even in what we've talked about many times. And I've talked about with you guys on PO. And I know you guys have mentioned many times is, is the um, relationship uh, between the soldiers, between the Marines in, and I can't believe I call them soldiers. That's, that's faux pas. <laughs> between <laughs> the Marines. Dare you? Any Marine listening is going to get super pissed, <clears throat> but yeah. Um, let me start that sentence over. It's the relationship between those characters and between the Marines that's very intimate and very condensed where we don't know that much about Vasquez's life and their background and all that. You're concerned about their particular, inc- their relationship, right? Between her and Gorman and her and um, Drake, right? Like all that kind of stuff. And so... Um, it's interesting to bring it back to the Blade Runner characters. It's, it's interesting when we get to take a step just outside and you see, um, 2036 or 2038, the nowhere to run, right? The short sappers short where it's like, you get a little bit of background on where he came from. Right. And, um, it just, it, it expands that idea a little bit, but I think that when we're talking about the main, the main uh, two films, there really is this feeling of intimacy and connection where you can really immerse yourself in that particular, usually the main character's story, but, you know, um, relate to all of them in that kind of way. And I, and I find that, that fascinating. There's also just a simple, um, the, the act of like empathizing with a character in a film, it, it kind of forces you to come out of yourself for a second, I think, which, which to me is really healthy in these, in times like this, where, where I find myself kind of getting trapped in my own mind a little more than I should be. Uh, this, the simple exercise of getting out of my own head for a second and, and spending time with somebody else's head helps me quite a bit. I think it's a really useful, um, exercise to do. You know, we were having a conversation in Fields of Calantha. Uh, a few days ago, which is where the conversation continues, our social media group, um, about the difference between the two films, you know, uh, related to our, our previous episode on the production design. And one of the comments that had come up, and I, I'm forgetting who had mentioned it, 
um, was, uh, it might've been Madge actually, was that in 2049, there's very little like sort of chatter. You, you don't really see other people and what they're doing throughout the film other than the people that you're focusing on immediately like 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 there's the people in the frame there's the people whose stories you're following but there aren't there aren't like you know the you know the rice merchants walking by doing their own thing there there aren't other than the other than the uh than like the street market scene there aren't that many other sort of fleshed out looking other people in the frame and there's something very insular about 2049 and i think that's Part of why thematically and tonally it's been coming up and feeling really relevant lately is because I think that our, our experiences during this pandemic and during all the things that are happening are becoming increasingly insular and in that it feels like sometimes, sometimes when I'm sitting here, you know, like the kids are asleep, my wife is asleep because she got up at four to go nurse today. Like I'm just sort of sitting here in the darkness talking to you guys and then I'm going to like, I'm going to shut the computer down and it's going to be real, real quiet again. And it's going to be that moment of like, ooh, man, like what else is like what else is out there in the darkness? Like what is going on? What awaits me tomorrow? Like what are all of these unknowns that are, I'm about to to confront? Um, I think that in uh, in a film like 2049, uh, you don't have to worry about that sort of, and it, and it feels like it's it's insular, but it's somebody else's insular experience, and in and it kind of being a part of it for a film, you get some perspective on your own. And there is that both of these films have these great scenes where the where the protagonists go into their apartments, right? And we've talked a lot about the parallels between those. Um, and Jamie, you mentioned the apartment earlier. That that to me feels very powerful now because it's 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 the way that I feel when I'm in that space at the end of the day and it's quiet again, and I feel like the roar of existence is just sort of on the other side of the pane of glass, and it's kind of waiting there for me. But for the next few hours, I have quiet and I have something where I can, I can kind of collect my thoughts a little bit. And uh, yeah, so I, I think just that the, these these characters are written in such a way where it's very easy to go into their headspace. And that, in a way, I think is part of the escapism. And, and, and I think part of why they're easy to get into is because they're really well written and really well cast. And I think uh, the characters of both of these films are among the most indelible characters in science fiction. And, and I, that, that was, to me, one of the big surprises when 2049 came out was that I felt like such an affinity for these characters so quickly, and they became so iconic as I was watching them. I mean, I really feel like Love in particular is a character who, as I was watching her in the movie, I was like, holy shit, this is a character that like I fucking love. This is such a great, fascinating person. And then, of course, Joy, who emerged as just this just amazing font of Ooh, conversation okay. for this podcast. <laughs> Joie. You know, she's somebody who we we, st- we still get, get requests from people to do more joy episodes, and I'm, part of me is like, "What? You didn't, you didn't get enough yet? We've done nine of these episodes." We do need to do but also, more. I'm like, "We do need to do more because because she continues to resonate with us in different ways, and well, this has come up in our private threads as well." Changed in the midst of continues the to find new ways to hate the fuck out of her. She's not real. <laughs> Nothing's real. Um, but but joy is another one of those characters, and then and I just feel like you know. It, I, part of me felt going into 2049 like there's no way we're going to get somebody who's like as iconic as Batty or as iconic as Deckard or as iconic as Rachel. And and, and we did. We got characters like that in this movie. And, and that's, um I think, just, a, just, just crazy. It is. Uh, I, I, I'm trying to remember I, the flurry of announcements for 2049. I don't remember. I don't remember if there was a synopsis dropped first or. Or I think they just announced it and nobody knew what it was about. Um, but then eventually there was a discussion of who are they casting in this movie? And, of course, Denis had worked with 
Jake Gyllenhaal for a, a couple of films. He's worked with some very specific actors. So there was a lot of uh, talk about who they would cast as the, the main protagonist, which is, of course, Kay. And a lot of people went straight to Ryan Gosling, um, but a lot of people didn't either. Uh, and that was, uh, and I'm curious what that was like for you guys. I, I, again, I don't remember exactly. I do remember being one of the people feeling like Ryan Gosling is it. I just, he's got it. Just based off of Drive and the films that he's been in, just his stoic nature, the way he acts, he just feels like a Blade Runner, um, or it feels like he could be in that world. So when they announced him, I wasn't surprised. Okay, I didn't hear you. You're early. You want me to come back? <laughs> Just go scrub. Yes, ma'am. How was your meeting? The usual. How was your day? Uh, I'm getting cabin fever. I was I was expecting Gyllenhaal, honestly, because they had worked together so many times. And because Enemy, which we've established, mm -hmm. is like one of my favorites of his. Um, which I and which I had been watching a ton before 2049 came out. I'm sure, and um, the special features. You go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to throw in that I I'm not I don't want to compare hypothetical performances, but I'm sure Jalen Hall would have been a great K. Like you know, we've seen his performances. I think. Oh my god, he, he would be amazing at it. Yeah, his um, face is so specific, though. Like I like Jake Jalen Hall. I think he's a great actor, but his face is really striking. He does Whereas, have stronger features than Gosling, yeah, for sure. And Gosling, I feel like, almost disappears in his roles. Whereas Jake Gyllenhaal, because of his features, it's harder for him to do that. He has to disappear in the characterization of his roles. Jake Gyllenhaal is... It's funny because he's all expression, but so is Gosling. But Gosling is all expressionless in in some ways. Like That's what makes him this interesting actor is he's... Very quiet, but he's you can see the world in his face without him doing anything. Whereas I don't know if Jake Gyllenhaal would have been aesthetically the right choice. I don't know. He could have been great. Who knows? Yeah, I, I think it would have been fascinating to see. I mean, I think it probably would have been a very different portrayal. Mm -hmm. But in the in the enemy special features, like specifically, um, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal makes a point of saying how he like really wants to work with Denis again on projects. And Denis in his special feature commentary is like, oh, I, I like I cannot wait to work. With, with Jake Gyllenhaal again and the next project we do together. Very so deeply, I thought, very, very And they just announced one. Very, actually. very deeply, very deeply. He, they just announced a show, a limited series show that Denis is helming with Jake Gyllenhaal based off Predator. Hey, what is it again? Yeah. Um, I think it's, is it about a drug ring or something like that? Some type of, I don't know. Yeah, I saw this and it, and it went out with the sieve of my mind because there's so much going on right now. But this, yeah, this, this has been announced. Pr producing um, or directing? Uh, both. He's going to direct a couple he's episodes. He's directing it too? Yeah, he's directing oh, okay. a couple of episodes, yeah. but he's producing it. Um, but yeah, so 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 that was that was what I had expected though. But, but as soon as Gosling was announced, I was really excited because he he, you know, had made such a great series of film choices in terms of what he was, you know, cast as. He's another another one of these actors who like Jillian Hall could have kind of played it safe doing romantic comedies or, or Matthew McConaughey, you know, like people who become heartthrobs when they're young and they, and they get all these offers for blockbusters and then they kind of take time away from the spotlight and they get, you know, really into the craft of, of creating portrayals. And then they come out and they do independent features and they do the, you know, these interesting roles. And, and um, I, I feel like 
Ryan Gosling pretty early on in his career, like after The Notebook, decided to do that. And I really respect that a lot because he was such a phenomenon after The Notebook came out. Uh, and then he goes right into doing very quirky indie comedies, you know, like right away playing, you know, drug addicted teachers, people who are addicted, to, you know, blow up dolls, playing these very offbeat characters, but with the body and face of a movie star. Right. And that and that juxtaposition, I think, is just is really, really interesting. And what I love about Kay uh, as played by him is what Jamie is saying is that he's so inner, he's so innerly active, inwardly active, but outwardly composed. That it gives this real sense that that he was engineered a certain way and his engineering is not holding up anymore because of other things within him. And as the film goes along and as that veneer starts to prove a little bit unstable, um, it's very powerful because it's very earned, you know, because because he's so unflappable for so much of the movie. And uh, as the flaps start flapping, uh, I think we get to see his <laughs> real range come out, you know. He has a what's interesting about. Uh, Gosling is uh, I keep thinking of Ad Astra in the character that um, Brad Pitt, Pitt plays and in the beginning they're talking about his um, pulse it never reaches a certain point he remains composed the whole time and how much they um, respect that but it's a quality they're looking for in someone who is going to lead a big project or go into space they need someone to stay calm so Gosling is essentially a replicant they've engineered to remain calm. And those those tests he takes, the baseline tests, are to see, is his blood pressure up? Is his pulse up? Where is he at? Is he in his head or is he nowhere as he should be? And of course, in the beginning, he's where he's need to be. He's completely composed. And then the more human becomes, the more of a liability he becomes. So it's an interesting, it's kind of interesting to see that they bred or manufactured or however they're made a replicant to essentially remain calm to do terrible things almost like a serial killer where there's cognitive dissonance where they can do horrible things to people without thinking about it arguably this is speculation in the world but arguably that is just a feature of nexus nines right like they're these obedient and not to say that they don't have different personalities one could argue that love and k both being Nexus 9s, have different personalities. But I would guess their heart rates are similar, right? Mm -hmm. Love is also someone like, she could be in combat, and it seems like she's like at, you know, 90 beats a minute or something like that. Like, so different, and obviously these are actors portraying them, so they're going to have different ways in which they portray that in different styles. Um, but we don't know. That could be a version of the Nexus 9. Like, oh, this is the, calm doesn't talk a lot under control model as opposed to the you know maybe there's a prostitute model or whatever um but yeah like i i think of because really love and k are the only defined nexus nines that we see as far as we know other than like henchmen and stuff you know we don't but we don't really get to see their personalities right so well Ma mariette could be an nexus nine as could she but could eight. Yeah, I I don't think of her as that though. I, I, th oh, really? I think she, she would be. Yeah, well, I, I feel like the Nexus Nines are like very specifically engineered for, for very particular. Okay, roles and and I'm not talking about speculating who could it, be a Nexus Nine. I'm saying who do we know for sure is a Nine? I think yeah. that's only Love and K in terms of the plot and the script, right? So they're kind of the example we have to so. go off of in terms of that type of calm personality. Um, 
I like to. This is unusual because I'm being a little spontaneous. I wrote down some notes. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> Dad, <laughs> you getting risky? <laughs> I have a. I have an, you flapping. I have an interesting thread that um, I always think about with Sapper, but I then extrapolated it to all the characters in both films. And so I want to bring this up real quick and just let it float with you guys and, and, and see if it goes anywhere. It might not. Um, it's interesting how whether in the casting, the characters of both films have a first name and last name seems kind of irrelevant because if they're referred to by name in the actual uh films they're either referred to by their last name or their first name like deckard is deckard always and to everyone no one calls him rick no one does none of the characters call him rick we don't refer to him as rick right but we know his name is rick deckard right so i mixed the films but i separated a list of characters that go by their last names Characters that go by their first names and then ones that we're not really sure, like Coco is a good example. I'm like, if that's that a nickname, first name, last name, I don't really know. <laughs> so Tyrell, Wallace, Deckard, Bryant, Chu, Joshi, and Holden. Those are all defined like we know those are those last name their last names. Some of them we don't even know their first names. Um actually we do know those people's uh first names but onto the other first name or the, or the other list which is first names mostly replicants roy pris zora rachel um jf kind of goes by both right like pris refers to him as jf batty refers to him as sebastian so does tyrell leon uh joy another one that's kind of like eh, first name but really it's like a proprietary name frasia uh, and then Love, K, Gaff, and Coco, I put question marks on them because we're not 100% sure. Like, Love is kind of her nickname, maybe. Uh, and again, replicants don't necessarily have to have a first name, last name. I'll leave Sapper for last because I always found it interesting that we referred to him by his first name, right? And again, he's a character that's not really mentioned by name specifically i mean his file has his name and maybe joshi says sepper morton once but really don't hear his name come up same but with you see his name come up you see his name yeah Mar- on the interface mariette's one that we only know from the script and from mm-hmm. like imdb her name never comes up in the show we don't know her last name she's only referred to and she's not never referred to by name right she's just like a hooker essentially um but i'll finish my thought with sepper morton um, because I, I was always like, yeah, you know, like the way he's like military and stuff, you would have thought, I would have thought they would have referred to him as Morton. But again, most of the replicants are referred to by their first name in the script. The other interesting thing is, um, I looked up sapper in the dictionary. Do you guys know what the definition of sapper is? I do not. Is it somebody who works with trees? <laughs> uh, no, Sap. I think you're confusing that for a slap sapling, which is a young tree, right? I think I, I just, just wanted guessing. to have a similar route. Yeah. So Flapping. slapper. I remembered it was, <laughs> I remembered it was related to soldiering, which is appropriate, but I couldn't have defined it myself. Uh, the, this is just like, like dictionary.com says a soldier employed in the construction of fortifications, trenches, or tunnels that approach or undermine enemy positions, which I found was kind of interesting considering. I had no idea. Right. Considering his relationship to, um, helping Rachel, you know, delivering Rachel's baby and the significance of that to the plot. And, you know, in terms of undermining your enemy, I thought that was kind of cool. Anyways, discuss. 
<laughs> that, is, that is really cool. Yeah, the, the, I hadn't really thought about the nomenclature in that way before. I don't know if it was intentional. And again, there's some that are ambiguous. Gaff is probably his last name, but we we don't know. We never really get clarity on that. Um, What's interesting, I think, uh, I know we've had a love episode, but I don't think we discussed this. As we discuss characters, I'm sure it's fine to jump around a little bit, but you brought up love. And what I do enjoy about her character, I mean, everything about her character, is that oftentimes in sequels or prequels, you, you get introduced to reintroduced to characters and you're... It's always this fine line like, oh, I see what they're doing. She's He or she is the flip of this old character, eh, you know, whereas I didn't get that sense with Love. Love was not Roy Batty. She wasn't trying to be or she wasn't written like Roy Batty, obviously not performed. It's a, she's a female character. I think there's some symmetry between them in terms of uh, some opposing symmetry, whereas Love was out to destroy. I don't think that's what what. Roy Roy didn't really want to destroy. Roy was pushed to that place because he just wanted to live. Um, but I never got the sense with with love uh, performed incredibly by Dutch actress um, Sylvia Hooks. Uh, she did an incredible job. I just really feel like they created an iconic character that did not stand in the shadow of anyone else. Another prodigal serial number returns. The 30-year-old open case finally closed. Thank you, officer. I'm here for Mr. Wallace. I'm love. He named you. Must be special. I'm here for Mr. Wallace. Uh, she was enough on her own. She was written and performed in a way where we don't get her confused with anyone. I think there is a little bit of a, a symmetry with Rachel in terms of when Kay meets her at uh, the Wallace Corporation where she's all in white and her hair is short and it's up like, and she meets him. She kind of greets him out of the shadows, but it's a very different kind of greeting. You don't get the sense that Kay is like, there's no mirroring of Kay seeing love and it's like, oh, she's beautiful or he's entranced with her. She's very much like, what can I do for you? Um, whereas with when Deckard meets Rachel, it's very... It's a very ethereal environment. Um, he's entranced by his surroundings, as I think Kay is too. But then he sees this beautiful doll, essentially, walk out of the shadows and greet him. Whereas uh, Love's entrance is uh, polar opposite of that. And again, they just did a really great job uh, with her character, with her writing, with her casting, to stand on her own as a replicant we will never confuse with anyone else. And they definitely do. That's definitely intentional, the aesthetic similarities when they first meet. And that, mm -hmm. I think we talked about that on the live episode a little bit, because when when the trailer came out, um, they showed her a little bit. And I was like, is that is that Rachel? Like, what's what's going on with mm -hmm. that? Um, because because she just sort of looks like she could be like another take on Rachel. And the way that they're introduced is, is definitely parallel. But I think just like it's, it's a great example of what we talked about a lot on uh, the previous two episodes, where it's a very strong stance that, that they're taking to say, like, here is something that you think you've seen before, but it's not. So just like when the eye opens in the beginning of the film, it's setting us up for something that we've seen before, and then we're immediately confronted with something very different from it. The whole movie does that. It, it gives us these little glimpses into something that we thought we anticipated, and then it says, actually, no, that's, that's not what was really there. Um, I want to go back for one minute before, it, and Dan, I know you, you had something to jump in, but I, just really quickly. The Nexus 9s in the film, 
Definitely, the, there's the two that we mentioned. There's also, though, the one that was in the 2036 Nexus Dawn short. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. Because that specifically was presented as a Nexus 9 model because it was obedient, right? And then there's one more, I think, which is the baby that comes right. out down the chute. That's a Nexus 9 model as well. Yeah, I think those right. are the four. Right. Oops, those are the four call. that we know for a fact would be Nexus 9s. Newborn is the term. I don't know if she's a baby, mm-hmm. but New, newborns. I, as soon as I said that, I was like, I don't think that was quite right. Okay, right. <laughs> the, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the toddler that comes out. <laughs> Which, by the way, uh, that that actress, I, we we should try to get her on the show because she she did such an amazing job yes. with such a tiny bit of screen time. Yeah. That newborn is so indelible is. to us. Yes, it is. Uh, I mean, I she's it, also was, Dutch. I think I'll look her up here in a second. She's a dancer, right? Kelly Harmson. Yeah. Oh, did you uh, say Staline at all? What's her first name? Did you oh, mention yeah. her in the... I did Anna? not, but... Uh, and she's Anna, not replicant Anna or Staline. human. We don't really know what she is. She could be full replicant. She could be... That's true. And right. a lot of the time, her bo- it's both names for her. Anna we hear Dr. Anna Staline yeah, yeah, a lot, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she is a and different it, one. It's curious, too, with the certain characters like Sapper Morton. I'm thinking he gave himself that name to reestablish... A life as a human. He lived as a human, so he wouldn't be detected. He's a farmer. Yeah, I'm on involved. board with that because he would have had a, I think, a serial number name like K if mm-hmm. he hadn't done that. Like, he, mm-hmm. and he was a soldier. There was no reason for him to have a first name, last name. It's not like he's a business model. He's not. He doesn't need to interact people in that way. So I, I'm 100 percent agree that I think he probably made up his own name, which makes sense that he picked Sapper because he was a soldier, right? Um, so he trees. Right. And, and, and trees, I guess, yeah. And trees. He does have a tree out front. Um, can we talk about Sapper actually for a moment? Yeah, I know he's a favorite of ours, and, and Jamie especially has been thinking about Sapper quite a bit lately. Mm-hmm. I, I just I want to say first off that Dave Bautista to me. So all right, so so a little bit of of true talk. Uh, I was a very big wrestling fan growing up. I went to quite a number of WWF and then WWE shows. My dad took me to like twelve matches, uh, and I fucking adored every single moment of it. Um, Dave Bautista came about after I had sort of fallen out of wrestling. Uh, fandom so he was somebody who I knew about because I had friends that were still like following that stuff that would be like oh he's like really really great uh, and like a really good guy because he had a reputation as being just a good person um, but he was like not on my radar in any capacity other than just recognizing his name uh, until Guardians of the Galaxy came out and I was like holy shit he was so funny in yes, that movie I could yes. not get over how naturalistic he was in that film um, and, and I find that really exciting because when you have somebody who has all of these other skill sets, like combat, like somebody who's like a professional fake combatant, uh, with a physique like that and an ability to, to move physically the way he can move, but like this incredibly poetic, quick witted, nimble spirit where he just acts like such a, such a, a mimic or such an artist. Um, I just, I just, I always like love performances like that. So, so guardians kind of blew me away. Um, and I was really optimistic when I heard that he was in 2049, although I couldn't really picture what that how that would work. And oh my God. Uh, so first off, of course, there was his short, which was awesome. 
Um, and then seeing him in the actual movie, I just I felt like uh, like Sapper Morton had been in my life mm-hmm. for as long as Blade Runner had been. I felt mm-hmm. like that. I mean, that character is one that I think about all the time. Yeah. I, I, things remind me of him everywhere I go. I see something. I'm like, oh, man, because he represents uh, we should do an episode on him, too, specifically. We, we will. But I think yeah. part of it is, is that he represents something that Roy also represents, which is you don't have to be what you're born as, you know? You, your your path isn't chosen for you, uh, or it is chosen for you, and you can choose to deviate from it. And 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 the risk to do that is immense. You know, Roy travels back from Mars and dies. Right, um, Sapper fights his way off the fields of Calantha. He finds his way to this, you know, incredible miraculous thing with Rachel, and then he puts up a homestead and he grows garlic crops and he and he and he just burrows into the ground. And lives a quiet life with a piano. I, like I, I love the fact that he has a little upright piano in there too. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I never thought about the parallel that Dave Bautista, you know, has gone on the record saying, "No, like I really want to give being a serious actor, like an actual actor, a shot." Uh, and I'm interested in working with serious people like Denis Villeneuve, etc. Um, I never thought about the parallel that he left soldiering and kind of a simple physical life as a replicant the same way he left wrestling the same way the actor uh or, or Dave Bautista left wrestling and kind of put all his eggs in that basket and took a big risk because he was not no I mean you know Hulk Hogan can be in a movie but like he's gonna be Hulk Hogan you know what I'm saying yeah. whereas um in terms of transformation right from how they are in real life and their interests and their personality to the character they portray on screen I think one could argue Dave Bautista makes the biggest transformation of any other actor mm-hmm. in the movie, possibly. Um, and that's really cool. I, I never even thought about the parallel of him going from soldier to farmer and him going from wrestler to, you know, serious actor. Um, and his role in Guardians of the Galaxy is different and like a little more tongue in cheek and less serious than 2049, but I agree he still does a great job and is obviously taking the job really seriously. So, um, yeah, I wasn't exposed to him before 2049, but I mean, there's just not a second ever during the one scene that he's in, at least in the main film where I'm pulled out of it or I'm like, Oh, could you know, I, I'm a hundred percent believing it. And it's great because he gets this quiet, somber philosophical tone that gives you this emotional depth and he also gets to like wreck someone through a wall, right? He gets to like yeah. really, en- <laughs> he still gets to do that. He gets yeah. to engage this skill that he has, which is this physicality, not only his physicality, right? But what wrestlers are really good at, which is acting, having this explosion of gross violence where it looks really spectacular, but you're actually, it's a skill set because you're being really careful to, although people, wrestlers do get hurt, like you're being really careful to not hurt the other person, but yet make it look as impactful as possible. And I realized in this case, like the wall was CGI, like there was some computer help with it. Um, but you know, he has a great background at like looking like he's beating the hell out of someone and actually not hurting them, which I'm sure Ryan Gosling was very grateful for considering this <laughs> massive mountain of a human had to be in this scene with him, you know? And, uh, anecdotally, Dave Bautista, they didn't want him for the role. They thought he was too young. They had to age him up. He had to really fight for it. And the makeup that they use, I mean, I, he's 
think in a in Earth years he's supposed to be around fifty ish. Um, or a little bit older than that, and he really looks the part. Like, and the the thing about what you said, Patrick, about his aura, like he feels like he's been around for forever. Number one, I think it's because um, that piece of the film has been written for a long time, and we've known about it, so he feels a little bit. That's uh, true too. Yeah. Uh, uh, everlasting, or whatever the word I'm looking for. Um, but he, there's a mythology about him. He he walks in the room and you feel his presence. You feel his existence. You feel his existence the way you feel Roy Batty's existence. There's just something about their will to live, their their um, that drive that he has to do more or be more. Um, that is just all over every inch of the of the uh, the home that he owns and the space that he dwells in. It's very very interesting. And to what Dan was saying, really. Uh, Bautista could have been The Rock, been in these shitty blockbuster films, being a shitty actor, getting paid, um, but not ever being taken seriously. And now, and uh, 2049 was his breakout. And then now it's Dune. He's playing, um, what's the character's name? The Beast. The Beast. Oh, boy. I can't remember his name right now. I've been up for like 30 We're about to get (laughs) crucified. I'll look it up. No, it's called The Beast Raban. That's what it is. Um, and you know, there's a still a couple uh, moments of of his um, character in the trailer, which I need to watch again because um, we have a year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we get not much else to watch. Yeah. Uh, but really, I I I love him. Uh, he and he also seems like the kindest, gentlest man. But he's also like I follow him on Twitter, and he's very politically active. And you do not want to cross him. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but but he fights for underdogs, yes, and he, he was one of the only people that stuck with James Gunn. That, that's really stuck with me a lot, actually. The fact that that he was so vocal in supporting James Gunn when Disney was trying to out him uh, a few years ago mm-hmm. for old tweet jokes that he had done, and and it was this whole big to do like like you know he's a very loyal person, I think, and and, a, and a, somebody who cares a lot about the people he works with. And as we've seen many times, that that's who Disney goes for. You know, um, I want I want to just before we move on. Um, Circle back for a moment to to the parallels with Batty, with Sapper, which is that I think uh, the, so they both right they're both warriors who became something other than that right. Um, they're both ex fighters who decided that they wanted to like bring more life into the world right. Um, and what I love about you know so Batty's journey is still very much this bellicose. You know, I'm going to, you know, get more life fucker at any cost, whatever it takes. Whereas Sapper, like, in addition to delivering the baby, um, commits himself to bringing more life into the world by the simple act of growing food, which is something that I find uh, just so beautiful and so cir- so circular, you know, because um, he's, an you know, an engineered being, right, who then through natural processes brings food into the world and nourishment and protein. Um, and I really love with him a couple of costume touches. Like I mentioned in the past that the glasses really stick with me a lot with Sapper. That's one of my favorite, my favorite elements of him because they're these ridiculous little, almost like pince-nezes, like these like old French glasses, um, on this hulking man. But it's this, it's exactly right. Cause, cause he, cause he's not comfortable in that body. That's the body that he was given, but like, that's not what his spirit actually is all about. And I love how he counteracts it with these tiny little, you know, these tiny little dainty glasses 
that he wears so he can read better. And I just, I just absolutely adore that character touch. And I really adore his house. Um, it's one of my favorite sections in the Art and Soul of Blade Runner book when they get into that. Um, every time the film is playing and I'm watching and I pause it and I look around what's in the room with him. I just love it because like where it's located is so cold and barren and vast and scary and overlit. And then you go into his house and it's just like it's it's like going to grandma's house when you're a kid or something. There's some, something cooking on the stove. It is. There's, you know, there's like doilies on the tables. There's these like these little touches of of domestic simplicity that he didn't do for anybody else because there's nobody else that sees him. It's for him. You know, that's what his that's what his paradise looks like. Like Sapper Morton's paradise. This guy who was engineered to fight and murder found his way to this little tiny patch of earth to a farm and set up a, you know, a shelter to stay safe, you know, from the elements and then within that created basically this little picture of 1950s, almost Norman Rockwellian um, American farm life. And it's just a, a beautiful, warm touch that, again, we see right in the beginning of the movie. And it, and it is really different from anything else in the first film. But because of the way it's lit and because of the way the scene progresses and because of when it was written, obviously, it feels very much in touch with the original. I, I just think Sapper Morton is one of the big highlights for me of this entire movie. To a smaller point you brought up, I didn't even think about his glasses. I mean, the the um, the point about the daintiness of them compared to this like hulking man is interesting. But also, it's a replicant wearing glasses. I don't think we've seen any other replicant wearing glasses, which I think living on a farm by himself would imply his vision is deteriorating, meaning he's not wearing clear lenses to like look cool you know <laughs> um and so <laughs> i think that shows probably just the fact that um nexus you know post nexus sixes so sevens through nines don't have expiration dates so they do age um and eventually die off and so i imagine right vision, he's a seven right uh no he's an eight He's an eight. The, the sevens. The only confirmed seven is Rachel. She's kind of a in between stage. Right, right, and then, right, yeah. if Deckard was a replicant, he was likely also a seven. So those right, are the only two right. sevens potentially in the world uh, because they were prototypes. And then Tyrell right. started producing the eights. The nine is sort of Wallace's improvement on the eights, right? But the eights are the ones that you see in the reliquary when you're walking in the into the headquarters, mm-hmm. floating the glass. Those are the eights. That's like the previous line, right? Because he's in there. There's a, there's a Dave Bautista right. floating in the glass. I'm not sure if those are just examples of prototypes on the way to building nines or yeah, if they're it looks all like eights. prototypes sure. to me. I don't know. You think so? Maybe. I don't know. I don't actually know, but that's something we should look up. Yeah, another one of those things that's up to yeah. uh, interpretation. Ooh, and I am going to tease something that I know we're going to do in the future. I don't know if it's going to be part of this 2049 series, but I know we've talked about it before, which is an episode tackling a little bit more of the detail of the actual engineering and manufacturing process of replicants, which we've sort of steered clear of because we all, and most of the fans love the way that it's kept ambiguous. Um, But I think we've talked about it before where we were like, you know, but that would actually be cool too. So I think that we'll probably start a thread and ask fans for their own theories and then bring up our own. And then we'll have an episode eventually discussing, um, sort of, you know, the stuff we don't see in the world building of how are replicants constructed because it's never really explained. And you get little glimpses here and there, but we don't know for sure, right? Um, that, I, that, That'd be great. I'm looking forward to that. That'll be a fun conversation. 
What do you guys think about Fraser? And I need to find out who that actor is. One yeah, she's an Israeli actor, I think. Um, I know several people who it's like the only character slash actor they don't really like in 2049. Um, or at least I've heard at least a couple of people speak uh, for that. Carla, one of our patrons, I know that's definitely her opinion. I, I think if I'm remembering correctly, she's not a big fan of Fraser. Um, yeah, I don't know. She's very historical in nature. Despite the fact that she was there for Rachel's death and childbirth, which is obviously an intense moment, I think, in those replicants' lives, but also this monumental moment in replicant history, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then arguably, she seems to be sort of a revolutionary leader. So I think she's a really big character with not a lot of development. Um, and I'm not saying that's good or bad inherently. I'm just saying that's the feeling I get from her. Um, I don't know. What do you, what do you guys think? Phrase is not a character that sticks with me very much. Um, I, I think the, the replicant uprising angle of the film to me is, is the, is the part that falls flattest. I think it's, it's just not something that, um, I don't know. It, it feels almost like it's the beginning of another film. And then that kind of gets aborted a little bit. Like where it happens in the context of 2049 to me is, is like not, I'm not like emotionally in a place where I'm like really particularly like excited for that. Um, and so uh, part of it is maybe that, but part of it also is she just kind of, um, the character is a little more like expected for me, the way that she's written, like she's this kind of war torn, you know, scarred, uh, elder who like wants, she's sort of a, uh, oh my God, what's this? I'm so tired. What's his name from Rogue One? Uh, Forrest Whitaker's character in Rogue One. Oh, I can't remember. Oh my god, I cannot remember his. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about, right? The, the general who's like been through a lot, and he's you know becoming General Grievous mm-hmm. <laughs> eventually because he's having so many things replaced, right? Um, that she kind of represents that to me a little bit. I, I think the actress does a good job, um, but but I, I it's it's curious. You know, she has more screen time probably than Sapper Morton does, um, or at least pretty much equivalent to it. And uh, and she, I kind of forget that she's in the movie sometimes. What's interesting, uh, the actor who plays Fraser, her name is. Hiyam Abbas, um, hopefully I'm saying her her name right. Her, her character's name is Freza. I don't know if I'm going to say her last name right. Sajapur. S-A-D-E-G-H-P-O-U-R. Um, I didn't realize she had a last name. I actually, when you see her at first, she I remember seeing the photo of her holding uh, Anna when she's a baby. What do we think who she is first? We think that's Rachel because it's a far away. Rachel again, yeah. Um, but it's not Rachel. But there's something like I have a photo of that photo uh, right like hanging on the wall right across from me. And there's something very powerful about that photo, about her being in there holding up the child almost like she's Mary. Um, I don't know. And then when you see her, there's something very powerful. I actually like it is re- it is it is resonant for me that she sort of rese- represents the uprising. Um, not that I'm excited about it either, like you, but I just feel like what I love about it is K is at the intersection of of three very major things: replicant produ- reproduction, which is huge, which she has the key to. Um, he knows what's going on. Replicant uprising, which he's being pulled to, 
you got to do this. You got to you've got to kill Deckard. You can't leave Deckard to me. All of those things, and then Deckard. Deckard surviving. Deckard finding his daughter. So he's met with these three converging ideas, and two of them, the replicant uprising, is kind of, it's it's valid. It's of course. Of course, there's an underground replicant uprising, because why not? Because historically, that would be happening to slaves. Historically, they would be, they would have a leader. That leader would find, if they came in contact with this other domesticated replicant who's essentially killing them um, because of the the local police government or whatever, she she makes sense that she would um, try and like, Hey, come to our side. We need you as well. Um, and what does Kay do in that situation? What would you do in that situation? Because their cause seems right. Um, but Kay cho- chooses the, the the simpler and more, I, I don't know, the term loyal is kind of, but he chooses to be loyal to Deckard and to Deck, who Deckard is. And it's really, really f- fascinating. And I love all of that with with um Fraser because she's she's off in her own world and she's got her own ideas and her own ways that th- she thinks she sh- things should go that involve Kay but Kay's not essentially says that you know as we see as the movie rolls on Kay's like I don't know I don't, I don't think that this is going to work for me um so I really makes, feel like she's she's powerful Kay makes a moral choice right he does what he thinks is the right thing to do yes. in that yep. situation, regardless of what Fraser's wishes are or whatever. Um, and responding back to what you were saying earlier about how, unless, yeah, I think you were saying like, you know, you, you buy her role and you believe it and it makes sense that she's there. And I agree with you. These aren't robots, right? These are, um, in terms of when it comes to leadership and politics and revolution, these replicants are people quote unquote, right? In terms of they have personal feelings about things and they have goals for the future and all of that, if you're going to organize a group of people like that, that are not machines or robots, it's going to require leadership. So if there is a rebel uprising or whatever, it makes sense that there's a leader. Now, you know, whether you connect with that part of the story, like it sounds like Patrick didn't, um, and, and I've heard this before from other people. I think it's, I have too. Yeah. 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 Um, and whether you think that a replicant war or revolution or anything like that should be explored in like comic books or further movies or anything like that, it's kind of a separate argument. But if that place and those people exist, they would have a leader like Frasia and it would be a somewhat political position, right? And I'm glad they didn't go any further with it. That's not the movie that I wanted to see. That's not the movie we're seeing. I think it was just important that they expanded the world a little bit saying, this isn't just about K anymore. The replicant existence has come so far that there are factions of them um, operating with their own ideas and their own within their own means. Um, but I, it, I think almost appropriately, you feel that way, and I think we all sort of agree. Like that's not what this. That's not K was here. What K was there for? K was there for another, another greater cause. Um, yeah, but- it, it's. Well, it just, it, that's that's exactly what I'm saying is is that it's it's like it's I, I buy it as being part of the world I buy it as a part of the world that I want to explore more but it, the where the where it hits in the movie feels like it's kind of it's too big of a deal to be treated that that summarily that close to the end of the film 
Um, and that's why I think it doesn't doesn't land with me. But I cut you off. I'm sorry. Jamie. No, no, no. That's fine. Uh, I, I think I've said what I needed to say. I just I do love the the hint of a larger uh, of su- larger subtext, perhaps. Or uh, I mean, that that could be a whole comic series right there on what those replicants are doing. You know who what Fraser is up to? Where is she going? What are what is her her long term goal? Is Staline even in on that? Like she's like, I'm going to, she says, I'm going to introduce her to the world. So does she have a relationship? Does she go and see Staline at that facility? I would imagine she does. I would imagine um, Staline is in on this as well, knowing who she is, knowing that she's part replicant, perhaps, or full replicant, whatever she is. Uh, it's, 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 it's complex. Uh, I would love to know more about that in a separate form. It's a comic I would read for sure. Well, and, and they do they do explore uh, issues like that in the in the comics too. For for those of you who are up to date, not not particularly that exact uprising, mm-hmm. but but there are there are similar. <laughs> not Jamie similar and Dan, those being explored. <laughs> <laughs> you guys gotta catch up. Um, I, I want to make sure before before we uh, before we wrap, uh, which we don't have to wrap now, but I, I might have to drop off because I've been up for so long. Um, is uh, Mariette because she's a character who is kind of a big deal in this movie, but we like never talk about her in any in any real way other than sort of the love scene. We just sort of bring her up, but she is a character with uh, I think a lot of interesting depth to her. And in terms of Mackenzie Davis. I, I don't I don't think I had seen her in anything before this. She she's somebody whose name I recognized because I knew that she was getting roles and she was kind of breaking out. She was in that TV show on AMC with Lee Pace. Um, oh oh that's right. Uh, oh my god. Uh, what the hell is it called? It's got a great catchy title. I can't remember right now. Yeah. Oh my god. We are so tired. This <laughs> is it's so late. <laughs> That was a great show, though. Uh, yeah, with, yeah, where show. they're playing early computer programmers, and yeah. she's the female lead, kind of opposite him. Yeah, she's okay. Fantastic. So I did, I did, I did know her from that. She was really good in that. Okay, right. Um, but that that was it. So she was kind of new to my to my radar, and and her screen presence in twenty forty nine, I find very memorable. I think she's she comes across like totally a part of that world, and and uh, and I'm not surprised that she has gone on to bigger and, and, and more prominent things since then. Cause I think she's, she's a movie star. She does a great job. She was that in part. dark fart and it was, I thought she was great. Dark <laughs> <fart>. <laughs> I actually was Yo, gonna, damn fucking loves that movie. I love the first half of that movie. Well, love is, yeah, love is a strong word. Thing. I like the first half of that movie. Obsessed. No, but I was going to bring it up. I think she does do I it. I thought she was great. She was great in that movie. She's one of the best performances in that film that's you know saying a lot considering that uh some big names are in it certainly everyone was excited to see linda hamilton again and like she did fine in terms of her acting i don't think her character was well written but i but yeah but don't give me that <laughs> I face dog, i think she was dog shit in that movie i think she was such an over actor i think she was horrible i okay but can you really not separate the writing from the acting there i think she was poorly written I I would agree with she was poorly written too. I just felt she was too much of the same Linda, the same what's her character Sarah Connor we had seen in T two. I didn't see any progression as a character, and she was oh, Sarah Connor. I'll be back. I don't do this. I don't like. I was like, come on. Anyways, I don't want to get too far down. Sarah Connor. 
I guess my point, well, <laughs> my point being that Mackenzie Davis is acting with some pretty experienced, high caliber actors, and she definitely holds her own and is one of the most memorable roles of that Terminator film. So, you know, I got to give her props for that. She's definitely uh, I'm excited to see what yet another secret Canadian. I don't know. I know they're not secret, but to me, I'm always like, what? She's Canadian. <laughs> I'm always like surprised. As is Gosling, of course. Gosling. And yeah, yeah, like so, but, but every year I find two or three actors that like I've been watching for years that I had no idea were Canadian and find out they're Canadian. Um, what the fuck? <laughs> well, they, <laughs> They just, they look just like us, you know? It's like a science fiction movie. <laughs> the replicants. Taken over. The whole country is a replicant. Uh, uh, and one, b- so much. Before we wrap, I, I well, I'm going to say this about Mackenzie Davis's performance. I don't feel like she's, she's interesting. I don't know. I feel like she's the only character that I don't really know what's going on with her. I can, when I look at Sapper, I know what's going on with him. When I look at, when I look at all the other characters, when I, even Gaff, who we haven't really discussed, um, there's a whole aura to Gaff when he's talking to Kay, where I feel like Gaff is trying to throw Kay off of Decker, off of where anywhere Decker could be. Gaff might even know where Decker is, but he's certainly not going to tell Kay. Um, but I feel like I have a sense of who Gaff is. Obviously, we have seen him in a, in a prior film, so that's part of it. Um, but uh, Mariette, I just, she feels a little one note to me. She feels a little bit like, Okay, I just I don't know what her emotional stake is in the story. Whereas everybody else, and it, which kind of leads me to uh, Anna De Armas, and I don't really want to talk about Joy so much as De Armas's performance, where you see her looking into Kay's eyes, trying to figure out what does he want. There's an emotional performance by De Armas, um, whereas I don't get an emotional performance by uh, Mackenzie Davis, and she's a fantastic actor. So I I would. I, I've seen the film dozens of times at this point. And maybe I'll watch it again and see if I can find something. But I don't know if that's just me, but she's just not that. She is aesthetically memorable for sure, because she's got that little Pris thing going on. And certainly the love scene is iconic and amazing. Um, But I don't, I don't know what else. I don't know what she's doing in the story. Well, I think what she's doing in the story is playing roles other than herself, which is part of why that emotional component might be elusive, because we don't see her actually being Mariette until that sequence with the replicant uprising people, right? Like the, the freedom movement. That's the first time we actually see her That's being true. honest. That's true. Right? So so for the first part of the movie, she and the other two doxies, I believe they're, they're called, are trying to get information about... Rachel from K by tricking him, right? So she's manipulating him on behalf of Fraser, you know, I would imagine. Hey, what? The, the Hold movement, the phone. Right? We need, we need, uh, Patrick's great <laughs> the, scratch sound that he edits in here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what, yeah. What are doxies and where did you get that? Yeah, what are doxies? Uh, that, that, I, that was in one of the one of the wiki things. That was in... Uh, Patrick's making shit up again. Look it up. <laughs> look at... Fucking type in it. Over so much. Doxies. <laughs> Doc, Verisimilu- Doxies. Blade <laughs> Runner. Whatever. Look at this. Doxies. Marriott and the Doxies meeting with Kay outside of BB's bar. Fake news. This is not fake news, bitch. Stop. They're called fucking Stop Doxies. Counting. Stop counting. And it... No. I won. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, let's not even fucking talk about it. 
Um, <laughs> no, so, so I th- it's in the credits too. I th- that's that's how they're credited: is Doxy One and Doxy Two. Oh, I, I, I believe okay. All right. that are, is actually a guess, but I think that's where we got that from. It's so in the credits. It's become yeah, it, it is. Anyway, this is not, not the point of this. My my point being <laughs> that she and these and these two uh, women are Doxy's replicants are trying to get information right. Um, and so they're tricking Kay. So that's how we are introduced to her, right? And we get these little flickers of her, you know, when she's flirting with him, where, to me at least, a little bit of her actual self kind of pokes through a little bit. And 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 you see that, like, she's kind of putting a mask on in this setting. But that might be me, re- me reading into it because I'm just sort of, you know, getting lost in the moment. But. No, but I'm going to jump on that because I... Yeah, I, I I mean, I, I certainly respect Jamie's point of view in terms of uh, if you think she's a little more one note, but I think that there's evidence in the plot and in the script um, that actually gives good reason for that and doesn't and implies that it's not necessarily anything to do with her own personality, and her own character, because we really don't ever see her in a comfortable, intimate place where she's being herself. Right. She's right. She's arguably, okay, so these doxies, like she's a spy, right? Arguably. She's trying to talk to Kay and get information when really she's working for Fraza, right? And then she's a, she's a prostitute. So certainly in terms of her day job or night job. So certainly um, a prostitute is the type of work where you're always going to have a mask on, right? Like, you know, what, what prostitute is actually like letting her personality and her own intimate person in on some dude right that's like a job to her right so that's two facets where i think she has good reason to um doesn't necessarily have to be one note but certainly not be genuine and where you're like i can't really read her own personality but i think that really fits the character well right um so yeah i was just gonna throw that in there that what part of what you're feeling could be very intentional and appropriate for the character i'm not guaranteeing that i'm just throwing that in there as a as a counter yeah she's mysterious you don't know what her intent is and i think that that works for sure because that's exactly how i feel about her not that i i feel like she's a bad actor in it or anything i just was like what's what's she doing here really and i think if anything we get the most intimate portrayal of her in the um sinking love scene where she sinks with joy. I think that from a physical performance perspective, I feel a lot of tenderness out of that scene and a lot of genuine genuineness. And I think sure, like Anadarmas and joy play a big part of that. Um, but I think Mackenzie Davis slash Mariette are really uh, putting a little bit of a personal touch into that. Like, yes, she's on a mission. Yes. She's a spy. Um, Yes, she may have gotten paid by Joy somehow through like a digital credit as a prostitute, but I Venmo. I like to <laughs> Venho. <laughs> Venho. Oh man, we got a cop. We got a copyright that one. That's oh a, that's man, we've been up for a long time. Ven- that's a good Ven-ho. one. But to wrap to wrap my thought, uh, I like to think that we do get to see a little bit of an intimate portrayal of Mariette's character in that scene. That is a little bit of actually her. I think well, that's another one of those moments I'm talking about, Dan, where like she's there to do a job that is deceitful, right? And regardless of of the intent behind it or the you know the the good intention behind it, like she's deceiving us and deceiving Kay because we're sort of he's our cipher, right, at this point. Um, but in that sequence where they're sinking, there are moments of, and it's not 
intimacy because she's not in love with anybody. Like it's it's not that you know she's a nexus eight. She's doing her job. It's more of uh, respect, and that to me is what I see in that scene. Even though it's only for a moment, I think when when Joy kind of yells at her for a second, and she's like she's like no stop, so they can sync better. I get a real sense of like okay, like I, I wanted to actually make this special for them, even though I'm here doing a job and getting paid for it. I'm going to be respectful. I'm going to make this as as special as I can. Yeah, she's taking it seriously or respectfully, as you say. But again, I would argue, and this is completely subjective and nothing that could be proven or disproven, I think. But in my view, I would argue that um, (laughs) you guys are going to shit on me for this one. I don't know what it's like to be a prostitute because I've never been one. (laughs) Oh, yes, you do. (laughs) (laughs) However... However, <laughs> you are van home. <laughs> you got you platinum status on van home. Yeah, you fucking knew that. I knew was it was coming. coming. I, I figured. You said it. Like, I figured I just like oh whatever. That was like a tea ball. I figured I just oh, like. Oh my god! It was a, yeah, a fucking tea bag. <laughs> that was that was just for you guys. Anyways, my my point is that I I think in a moment of intimacy where you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, right? She's getting paid for a job. She's doing an infiltration mission, essentially. I think that it's totally plausible that in that half hour, hour, 10 minutes, however long it lasts, you can lose yourself in the moment and be yourself and be intimate because, you know, they're not talking. It's all never let it go. (laughs) It's all physical communication. So I think that, um, you know, I, I mean, I can reflect back on you know, moments like that in my life where it's like, you know, there's, there's a special place you can reach where you're just being intimate and physical with a person where you get that whole feeling of it's just the two of you and nothing else in the world exists. You don't necessarily have to be in love to get that feeling. And so, you know, I, I view that scene with a lot of tenderness um, from that perspective, which again is my own personal perspective, but just want to throw that Dan, out. Dan, why does this feel like you're giving us the memoirs of a gigolo or something? You're like, <laughs> in, in, in my lifetime, you know, I've been intimate, but I've you know known what it's like to not be emotionally intimate. I'm, I mean, two bodies can connect. I, I mean, I've had, minutes, lot, I've had a lot. I've had a lot of Venho transactions, but just like sometimes <laughs> you have that special moment. <laughs> Hit me up, Dan F sixty nine. striped. <laughs> Only uh, fans. We better wrap this Flash before it really falls Dan. apart. Yeah, we, yeah, this is going this is going downhill. Uh, but I, as we wrap, I wanted to to, to mention a couple things as, as it relates to um, Joy and what's her, uh, to Mariette. What's interesting is what I, I do see in Mariette in the scenes where we're seeing her for who she is. There is this almost um uh what's what do you call it when a rivalry between them because they both are similar. They operate similarly. They're both sort of companions. And there is some, like when she goes, oh, you don't like real girls. You, you know, whereas Joy may, might take business away from what she does. It's very interesting. They seem at odds. They don't really get along. Um, when they're sinking the next day. Well, they don't, Joy wants they don't relate out. to or understand each other, right? No, no, not at all. But they're, but they're, but they do on a functional level because they're both engineered for a particular function, yeah. which is companionship, yeah, right? Totally. So, so they, I think that they, they see that. Yeah, that's a good point, Jamie. Um, at any rate, we should probably wrap. I know there's we should, but I got to say, you know, we've been talking for a long time about doing more character episodes and we've been waiting for this shit. For a long time, because we keep going through production and concept and pre-production and all that stuff. We're at the point now where I think we should branch out and do some more character stuff. Let's do it. And I really want to do Anna Celine because that's been a very frequently requested topic. And um, and again, we kind of barely 
barely touched the surface of that character tonight. And and I think, you know, as we go along in the series, now, now we're in the meat of the film, right? Like we've gotten to the point where the movie's being made. We know we have the artwork, we have the production design, we have the way it's being shot. Now we can really talk about the film itself again in, in much grander detail. And I think the characters in this movie are at the heart of the experience of it. So I hope we get to dedicate some really good time to characters. And and please, you know, head over to Fields of Calantha. Um, you know, there'll be a thread up there a couple of days after this drops next week where we will, you know, be in there talking about your thoughts on these characters and on other characters you'd like us to talk about. And we will incorporate a lot of what goes on in those threads into those episodes as they come. So if you want to have direct input into the trajectory of the series as we go along, uh, make sure you join us at Fields of Calantha on Facebook and we will be there talking um, with you guys and figuring this out. For sure. And before we leave, we have a program called Patreon. And if you want to sign up, it starts at $2 a month. You get the shows, of course, our main shows. And then you get Framerate, which is our film review show. Um, and we have over 40 episodes of that ready and waiting. There are some free episodes available through our regular um, channels already, but most of them are behind a paywall. Starter $2 a month. You also get Chit Show, which is for Perfect Organism, if we ever start doing it again. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, if you want to sign up, go to uh, bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Two bucks a month. That's it. You get hours and hours and hours worth of content. You can send us emails, give us your thoughts, maybe come on a show. It's a, it's a great way to support us, and all your money goes back into the show. Um, we're about to unveil a audio drama in the next couple of days, so a lot of the money's gone into that as well. So, And while we normally don't announce our frame rates, we've mentioned it before in passing, so I'll just add it again just because I'm personally excited, but the three of us are going to be doing uh, Predator for our next frame rate. It, it may come out right before this or right after this episode, so again, if you're a big fan of that movie, uh, we're doing research and getting into it, so that'll be a really fun one, and you guys can look forward to that on our uh, Patreon program. You know who's in that movie, Dan? we love you guys hang in there stay safe take care of yourselves take care of each other we're so close even it's still going to be shit but hey we're we're moving through this shit together arm in arm and hand in hand and you are on our minds all the time regardless of uh whether or not we say it often enough you are always on our minds out there absolutely thanks guys See you guys. Love you guys. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.